This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, evidence that sleep disturbances in young people might be a sign of increased risk for major mental health issues like psychosis. And could there be a blood test which helps that prediction? Plus, registering a million Australians who'd be willing to be contacted if there are studies of new treatments relevant to them. And our regular segment with my co-host of Chronicast, Tegan Taylor, whose day job is actually as a health reporter in the ABC Science Unit. Hi, Tegan. Hi, Norman. And you've been looking at how a pandemic ends. That's right. And so obviously I'm single-handedly trying to solve how this pandemic that we're living through now will end. But while I was doing some investigating, I came across a really interesting footnote in Australia's medical history. Mm -hmm. So um, we were talking about, well, the the pandemic that people love to compare COVID-19 to is the 1918 flu pandemic, which lots of people called the Spanish flu for reasons that I won't get into, didn't start in Spain. Yeah, nothing to do with Spain, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But um, one of the things that we're hoping for with this pandemic is a vaccine. And it's often talked about that the 1918 pandemic had no vaccine. And it's kind of true, but it's also kind of not true. There were attempts to make a vaccine for the 1918 flu, including a couple here in Australia. And what, so just tell me more. So basically, um, it was a very high tech method of getting people to cough up gunk out of their lungs if they had pneumonia and then taking the bacteria from that and killing it and then injecting that into people as an attempt to vaccinate them against it. Because, of course, in 1918, while uh, the process of vaccines was really that was it was a really hot time for vaccines. Um, But they didn't know anything about viruses. Exactly. They didn't know viruses existed. They didn't know that the influenzas were caused by viruses. But when they looked in the lung gunk of people who had flu, they often saw bacteria there and thought that maybe that's what was causing it. And of course, lots of people did die from the Spanish flu, from secondary bacterial infections. So, I mean, maybe it might have have been virus in in the flu, in the gunk as well. That's right. But another really interesting thing about this particular attempt. There were more than one attempt um, being done all over the world, including here in Australia. But one of the groups that was involved in this was Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, which we might know today as CSL, aka one of the groups that's helping produce the vaccine or helping speed the process of one of the vaccines here in Australia. And in those days, it was publicly owned. It was a government body, but then became privatised later on, which is the case now. That's right. So it was based um, at a quarantine station and it was basically developed during the First World War so that Australia didn't have to depend so much on imported vaccines. And in 1918, it was developing this first experimental vaccine because it knew that the Spanish flu was an issue. I don't think at that stage it had actually come to Australia. It was sort of, they were doing it kind of on the front foot. And the other thing that was fascinating to me about this was just the scale of this and the speed of this process. So obviously at the moment we're waiting patiently as the vaccines that are being attempted to be developed for COVID-19 go through multiple phases of clinical trials as well they should. But in these days they got a vaccine up within a month or two and millions of doses and managed to vaccinate, voluntarily vaccinate a quarter of Sydney's population at the time. Yeah, a huge number of people. They they lined up for it. But of course, in those days, they didn't have to do phase three clinical trials to get registration. That's right. And we don't know (laughs) whether it worked. Well, we don't really know whether it worked. There was a study that sort of they, they said it probably did reduce deaths in people who got pneumonia, but who knows what data they are actually using there. So how did the 1918 pandemic end? 
Well, yeah. So one of the things, well, pandemics start when you have a, basically a viral, a pathogen that can cause disease in humans and no one has immunity to, and it's highly transmissible. And so one of the things, well, the, the main way that they end in general is that we build up immunity to them. And so the 1918 flu pandemic, it infected a third of the world's population in about three years. So eventually we developed herd immunity to it and it just became the seasonal flu strain. So people were still catching it, but it wasn't spreading at those huge pandemic levels. And it basically got kicked out by the Asian flu pandemic in 1958 and it spilt back into swine. So it, it it spilled back into pigs and actually the H1N1 pandemic of 2009, the swine flu pandemic, kind of in part has, it has genetic material from that 1918 strain in it. Fascinating. Question for you, Tegan. What was one of the first clinical trials ever recorded? Oh, I don't know. Can you tell me? Bloodletting in the 19th century. And it ended, showed that it didn't make any difference at all and it ended bloodletting. Fantastic. <laughs> That's so fascinating. No, we've got to, we've got to start a new section. In... That's right. It's time for me to ask you a question, one yeah. from our audience. So we're going to be answering questions each week in the podcast version of the show, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. But you're listening to the radio right now, or if you are listening to the radio right now, we're going to answer a question for you now. So Norman, <coughs> David, David Gammy is asking... Um, He's often heard that the patient should remember to mention various things to their medical practitioner when they go, and they're suggesting, is this something that could be searchable? For example, if David has an appointment coming up, could he search for his condition and refresh his ideas to plan for that consultation? You could. Tends to drive a GP nuts, of course, when people come in with reams <laughs> of material from the internet, and, and you should be able to, I mean, look, there's no problem in knowing as much as you can, as long as you go to reliable sources for that and not nutty sources, and you tend to know where they are, you know, sort of reliable clinics, Mayo Clinic and what have you from overseas, WebMD, and there are other places that you can go for reliable information too. It's much more useful, I think, to have a set of questions, a kind of generic set of questions that you want to ask your doctor before you go in, when you go in, and, and, they, and they kind of work. So, for example, if your doctor wants to prescribe a treatment or start a treatment or a specialist does... There are three questions which actually have been tested in a randomised trial at Sydney University. And the first question is, well, what's the chances it's going to work? And what are the chances of side effects? And what are the alternatives to this treatment? And what are the chances that they'll work and side effects? And this, this, was, this will really drive your doctor nuts because <laughs> they've got, they'll be forced back to the textbook. And the third question is probably the most important of all, is what if I do nothing? What will happen to me? And then if you're going to have a diagnosis, a diagnostic test, the first and most important question to ask is what's, if, what's the chances that the result of this test will change my treatment? Because if it's not going to change treatment, there's probably not much point there. Um, and what's, what's the result that it could result in harm? In other words, unnecessary treatment. And in the podcast, I'll talk about some examples where you could actually get harm. And thirdly, again, what would happen if you do nothing? So if you want to ask, we'll do more on the podcast for those who are not listening to the, the, who are not listening to the broadcast. And if you want to ask a question, go to healthreport under, uh, underscore rn at abc.net.au. And we'll see you later, Tegan. See you then. This is RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Last week, when AstraZeneca put a temporary halt on the phase three trial of its corona vaccine, the world took notice. A few months ago, I talked about, if I was to talk about a phase three trial of anything, I'd have had to explain it to you what it meant. Now it just trips off the tongue. 
The thing is that in normal times, it's often quite hard to recruit people to clinical trials, and many studies fall over at this hurdle because they just don't get enough people to participate. The reasons are generally not that people are resistant, it's more about finding those for whom the trial is relevant and the administrative efficiency of doing that which is one reason why the George Institute at the University of New South Wales has launched a project called Join Us, which aims to recruit a million Australians who pre-consent to be contacted if there's a study that might be appropriate for them. Professor Bruce Neal is Executive Director of the George Institute. Welcome back to the Health Report, Bruce. Thanks, Norman. <clears throat> now, you're a clinical trialist. Before we get to Join Us, what do you think of AstraZeneca not telling us what happened to the woman in the vaccine study for whom they halted the trial? Yeah, so, so it's interesting. I mean, there's obviously huge interest out there, and, and that in itself might be a good reason for, for the company to disclose more information. I mean, it did eventually disclose some information, um, although that was really a sort of part of a financial process rather than a, a sort of sharing process. Well, just to explain, um, I mean, that was a leak by investors who were at an investor briefing. Right, yes. I mean, that's not exactly to, being transparent, is it? It, it, no, you're quite right. It's not. And there might be good reasons to disclose more information. It might, for example, um, provide other researchers um, around the world with an opportunity to, to, to look at the potential concern and, and provide input and information into it. It's probably not black and white, though, because there may be some cons to releasing um, information like this midway through a trial when you're not quite sure what's going on. Um, if you've got a very severe, unusual event, it can um, have patient confidentiality issues. You might end up disclosing um, the identity of an individual, which obviously is something we're, we're very careful about. But even, in, the, even in a trial of 18,000 people? Well, it's, it's unlikely, but it's possible that if you disclose that this person had this particular condition, it's very unusual, they're in a hospital, um, staff might get to know, um, it could get leaked. So it's a, it's a theoretical possibility, probably more than a, um, a really substantive risk. Um, I guess perhaps, Norman, the bigger concern is that if you say, look, this may be a risk, it's been turned up, but then it turns out that you complete the trial and it clearly isn't a risk. It's often very difficult to rein that sort of thing back in. So um, it, the, the, the media surrounding the announcement of something like that is going to retain much more prominence probably than the media that tries to reel that back in and say, look, actually, it wasn't an issue. So you're and that could have concerns, you know, could have, could have sort of ramifications down the track when you try to get people to take the vaccine. Because they create expectations of the side effect. Let's go to Join exactly. Us. Tell us about Join Us. What's the idea? Yeah, so you've, you've given a really nice um, pricey of it, Norman. Um, it really is this sort of um, observation that if you go to the community and say, would you be willing to be involved in research that was relevant to you? About two thirds of people will say yes. But actually, in practice, only about 1% will ever be involved in a clinical trial. So we've got this sort of huge um, discrepancy between those two. And as you said, it's mostly an administrative matter, um, not anything more substantive than that. So uh, what, what was the idea here then is what? What are you going to do? So let me give you an example. You know, if I wanted to recruit a trial, um, there was a new promising drug for heart failure. The way that we would typically do that right now is um, we would go to the heart failure specialists around the country. We'd have to negotiate contracts with them, which is time consuming um, and resource intensive. Um, and then we have to rely on those heart failure specialists to recruit people um, who will then go out, search databases, communicate with patients. And that can literally um, take months and tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars to put in place. 
What we want to do is turn that around and get Australians to sign up to a register um, where they say, look, I'd be happy for you to come to me direct and ask me about that trial. And the way that you can do that is um, I'll give you my information and I'll also give you permission to connect my information to the routinely collected data that's held about me um, in databases um, around the states and territories or around the country. And then what I can do is I can search those databases and I can say, look, here's um, 23,000 people who might potentially be interested. I can send them an invitation direct and then they can choose there and then if they want to get in contact with the researchers and be part of the project. So how could I trust you that you're not going to use that data for anything else? Well, first of all, I'm very trustworthy, Norman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, no, look, it, it's a very, it's a very good question. Obviously, um, data security these days um, is a huge issue. So the way that we do this is we separate the data. So we ask you when you sign up to give us uh, your um, identifiers, so your name, um, your address, your contact details. We also ask you to, in the first instance, just fill in um, a, a brief questionnaire, twenty questions about some common illnesses. Now. Immediately after you do that, that same day, we separate and we keep separate those bits of information. So your identifiers stay in one database um, and we attach to them a unique number. And then we export the health information to another database with that unique identifier attached, but without your personal identifiers. So if you break into that database that has the health information, and the same is true of any other health information that ultimately we put into that database, it can never be linked direct to you. It can only be linked um, through that unique identifier, and we're able to control very carefully um, who has access um, to those two pieces of data. And will you get access to the medical benefits schedule, uh, Medicare or pharmaceutical benefits schedule? Because that's what you've got to do to get the, the diagnosis, haven't you? Yes, that's exactly right. So the way that works is that um, we provide to the Medicare benefits schedule the, the details of the individual with that unique identifier. They're able to then um, find the information relevant to that individual. But what they send back to us is that information only with the unique identifier, not with the patient's individual. So once again, the confidentiality of the data is preserved. So apart from going to the vast audience of the health report, how do you plan to recruit people? Yeah, so um, we, we plan to, so, so we've consulted widely, um, both with researchers and also with community um, across the country. And we're going to use every means possible um, to get this out um, in the general media and tell people about it and hope that people will um, sign up. Now, we're not sure what's going to be the best way to recruit people, uh, but we're going to go out there, try lots of different mechanisms, and then the ones that work, um, we're going to stick with. We're also going to very specifically go after um, population groups so often underrepresented. So um, thinking here particularly about sort of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander groups with whom we've been um, consulting uh, and also culturally and linguistically diverse groups um, who are also often seriously underrepresented in medical research. Thanks, Bruce. We'll uh, put a link to, your, uh, to join us on the Health Report's website and obviously we'd welcome our Health Report listeners' views of it. Um, yeah, and if anyone wants to sign up, please do. It's there for patients and the community at large. Bruce Neal is Executive Director of the George Institute at the University of New South Wales. An Australian study of day and nighttime sleeping problems in teenagers and young adults has shown a subsequent risk of potentially serious mental health issues such as psychosis. 
There have been studies in the past which have shown links between insomnia in adults and mental health problems, but not so much in the younger age groups, which is when major psychological problems tend to begin. The lead author was Professor Jan Scott, who's Chair of Psychiatry at the University of Newcastle. Welcome back to the Health Report, Jan. Thank you very much indeed. Nice to speak to you. It's been a while. What was known before, <laughs> before you did this study? Well, I think we had lots of data from cross-sectional studies that showed a very strong link between sleep problems and mental disorders. And indeed, this has been known historically because many uh, sleep uh, sleep problems are part and parcel of our diagnoses of mental disorders. So some of the criteria for diagnosing depression and mania include sleep problems. And we know that these occur together commonly. But I think the problem was most of the data we had from longitudinal studies. Meaning, so cross-sectional really... is a point in time, longitudinal means you follow people through. Yes. So, what is it? so, I beg your pardon. Yes. so, so if we look prospectively, Increasingly, what happened was the studies focused on only one type of sleep problem, namely insomnia, and predominantly on its links to depression or to mood disorders. And I think we came to regard that as the strong link and didn't really expand our thinking to a whole range of sleep problems, particularly the sleep problems that are common in young people, and also to think beyond mood disorders, to think more about, well, is this a a potential issue across a broad range of disorders. And you did and this so in what we you did it in twins. It was twins and their non-twin siblings. So it's about it's a, a big data set that's available from the Brisbane Longitudinal Twin Study that we looked at. And they recruited people from Brisbane and the surrounding areas uh, from the age of about 12 onwards, about 30% were identical twins, 30% non-identical twins, and 30% were their, their siblings. But we controlled, we, we adjusted all our analyses to take into account the fact that twins are not exactly the same as every member of the population. Yeah. And what sort of sleep disorders did you look at? So what we looked at was we had data from self-ratings of sleep problems, and this included the classic one, which is insomnia, which is where people have uh, difficulty either initiating or staying asleep. Uh, we also looked at two sleep problems that are very common in young people, which is hypersomnia, where they oversleep, and also a problem of sleep timing, which is what we call delayed sleep phase, which most adults will be able to relate to if they've got teenagers at home, which is they go to bed later, they go to sleep later, and they don't really want to get up in the morning so because their sleep phase is, is pushed across uh, to later hours. Um, and so we tried to add these in because these are very common in young people, not so common in middle-aged adults where most of the other research had been done. And what did you find? So what we found was that, first of all, is all sleep problems were likely to increase the risk of the three most burdensome mental disorders in young people, well, in the world, really, depression, hypomania, or mania, and psychosis. And the hypomania and meaning bipolar disorder. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, looking at people who get what we would, what used to be called manic depression, is now called bipolar disorders um, on a severity scale. Yeah. So, so basically, classic mood disorders, depression, and, and bipolar disorder, and then also at people who developed a psychotic disorder. And the relationship was? So what we found was that if you look at things like um, insomnia, 
purely on its own without any daytime impact, then this is actually a really common symptom in young people who go on to develop psychosis. It actually increases your likelihood two or threefold, which is which is a significant shift upwards and is worth you know paying attention to. We then found that things like the hypersomnia probably showed a stronger association to mood disorders and, and that fits in with some of our other theories regarding the notion so things like of, of depression really. Yeah, so depression and also potentially bipolar disorder showed a stronger link to things like the hypersomnia, which we think is is is, you know, a bit more of an established thing, particularly with daytime impacts on that. Well any parent of a adolescent listening to this would say but that's what my adolescent does. You know, they sleep, they sleep during the day, particularly the weekends when they don't have to go to school. They're up all night if I don't actually nag them to go to bed and go to sleep. How do I know this is abnormal and meaning something's going to happen? Does this just give me another thing to be neurotic about? Yes. <laughs> and I agree. And I think we have to be very careful there about what we actually think this means in the real world. But I think what's increasingly important in trying to think about how do we reduce you know, the individual family and and societal burden of of mental disorders and the distress associated with them, then what we're looking for is modifiable risk factors and triggers. And it is absolutely But that assumes that the sleep disorder is cause and effect. If you sleep better, you're not going to get the problem. But that's not necessarily true, is it? No, no, it's, it's not as simple as that. But I think it's a modifiable factor which might reduce the risk in some people. And I think the reason that we're interested in that is because some of the interventions to improve, not necessarily extinguish, but some of the things we can do to improve people's sleep patterns and just make them a bit more healthy are actually relatively simple. Um, and is there and any evidence that can change the outcome in terms of mental health? Well, that's too soon. I think the problem is with this is that um, you'd need massive, you know, studies on a very, very grand scale to actually prove that the intervention definitely prevents onsets. But if you take population-based data, what you do is you you shift what we call shift the bell-shaped curve. You actually so it's not going to do any harm to make people sleep better, and maybe you'll improve some people at the edges. Absolutely, that it's it it doesn't appear to have an adverse effect, put it that way. And for some people, it might make the difference between either getting a full-blown major episode of a mental disorder or it might delay its onset for some time. And, and even that can be very helpful because if you get the onset absolutely in the middle of your adolescence or early adulthood, when there's so many, you know, major life transitions it can be quite complicated whereas if you actually can shift that to when people are at a slightly more settled stage of their life you might make it easier to adjust to jen thanks for joining us no problem at all nice to speak to you press jen scott is chair of psychiatry at the university of newcastle Australia, particularly through the work of Professor Pat McGorry in Melbourne, has probably led the world on the importance of detecting psychosis as early as possible in the hope of intervening and preventing a decline. Abnormal sleep patterns might be one way of helping early detection, but could another be a blood test? 
Well, according to a new study, that might be possible. David Cotter is Professor of Molecular Psychiatry at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. Welcome to the Health Report. Uh, hello, how are you? Fine, thank you. Um, tell us what you did in this study. We were lucky enough to receive samples from a large international study which is looking at young people in what's called the at-risk mental state, which is a description first described by Pat McGorry and Alison Young from Australia of people, young kids who don't have psychotic disorder, but they have symptoms which are sort of on the cusp. And we know that about 20 to 40% of those young people go on to develop psychotic disorder if you follow them up. So what we did was we looked at the bloods of, of these people um, at baseline, so when they were first seen, when they had these symptoms that weren't quite psychotic disorder. So these are when kids are compared, in their room, they might be talking to themselves, uh, that's, well, that sort of thing. They might be having odd hallucinations, a bit paranoid, but, but they'd be doing okay all, overall. They'd be able to work or be able to go to school. So they wouldn't, it wouldn't have been going on for long enough to reach, to be officially psychotic disorder. It was not great, but to be honest, these symptoms are common enough. And only about one in five of these people with these symptoms go on to get psychotic disorder. And you looked at the so, bloods. So we looked at the bloods before they became unwell. So they were followed up after two years and we found out who became unwell and who didn't. And we looked at the bloods when they were first seen. So two years, two or three years before they became unwell. And we compared the bloods of those who became unwell with those who didn't. How did you know what to look for in showed... the blood? So that's actually the most interesting question. Um, we were deliberately doing something called discovery. So we, were, we, had, we had an open mind. We just compared everything we could see. So we weren't looking for particular So this massive or... chemical analysis of the blood. And then you looked at which ones played out in terms of predicting psychosis. <laughs> Yes, it was massive potential, but actually we only could see about two or 300 proteins which were reasonably abundant and we could reliably assess. So, those, so we found something that we wouldn't have expected a few years ago. Um, we found changes in proteins which relate to inflammation. Um, and they were really, really powerful predictors of whether someone would develop the disorder or not. How powerful? So at the, the end, so 93% who would develop psychotic disorder could be predicted by the blood tests. That's extraordinary. Using 10 proteins. It was, it was absolutely extraordinary. We were gobsmacked and we, we just really scratching our heads and, and we just didn't think this could be real because previous studies, the best were around 70%. So, so we did a few things that convinced us. We took one of the big samples from London, for example, and took it out of the analysis. And then we ran the analysis without London. We were able to develop an algorithm which would predict. And we applied London samples you know, to that algorithm and we got exactly the same results. And, and also there's other confirmatory work we did, which makes me think it's, it's, it's real. But it has to be replicated, of course. Um, I mean, I can't think of another situation in health, in health or medicine where you get a 93% prediction of a disease. You know, you, you can do your cholesterol and say, well, maybe in 10 years' time you've got a 15% chance of a heart attack, but not this. Well, it, it was strong. And also in terms of predicting those who would not develop the disease, we were able to identify 80% who would not. So it's not perfect, but it was really strong. Um, what, so how, we've how, actually been asked to replicate this. Uh, I'm sure you have. To, to, we're running out of time because we're just late in getting into the interview. No just very quickly, how could this be applied clinically if, it was right, if you turned out to be right? 
Okay, two main things. One, the proteins that we've found to be altered could be targeted for treatments in the future, but that's ahead of us a few, a few years. The other thing is, for the first time, if this is real, we'll be able to give treatments to these people who we have a very strong chance of developing the disorder. Um, there have been no trials. Of, no one has been able to do this before with this level of certainty. So it would change what we do in a very remarkable way because we can target these people for psychological treatments and potentially for medications and the knowledge that they may get better. You wouldn't want to have given drugs to people in the past when they only had a 20% chance of getting the disorder. So it changes the picture. Um, and just briefly, because we, we are just about out of time, was the disorder schizophrenia sure. or chronic psychosis or what? So the disorder that they transitioned to was psychotic disorder. It would have most likely been schizophrenia in the longer term. But at that stage, it was just called psychotic disorder, which is equivalent to schizophrenia mostly. David, thanks for joining us. Fascinating. Very, very welcome. David Cotter is Professor of Molecular Psychiatry at the Royal College of Surgeons. In Ireland, now it's back to Tegan to your feedback and your questions. Remember the email to email in is healthreport, one word, underscore rn at abc.net.au. Tegan, what have you got for me? Oh, sorry, before you go on, actually, Tegan, I I was going to expand on the uh, diagnostic stuff that I talked about at the beginning of the programme when we went to actually air broadcast-wise to give you examples of diagnostic tests that can go wrong if you're not careful or a waste of time. Um, So it's important to ask those questions. A key one is MRI or CT scan of the back if you've got low back pain. Um, And what happens there is, so this is just common or garden, low back pain, pain's going down your your leg, perhaps into your buttocks down your leg, and you've got no what are called red flag signs. So the red flags are you've got no bleeding or bruising from anywhere else, indicating that you might have a cancer of some kind, you've got no sign of infection in the bone, and uh, you're not losing weight, and you've not got any weakness or serious neurological problems with going along with your back pain. If, the, if that's what you've got, then there is no additional benefit from doing an MRI or a CAT scan. In fact, what you can find is stuff that's going on in your back that makes you spooked, and makes the doctor spooked, and increases the chance of you having spinal surgery and other problems. Another example is MRI of the knee. If you were to do an MRI of the knee of somebody with knee pain, if they're aged over 50, you'll find all sorts of problems, including a torn meniscus. But you'll also find if you do it on people without pain in the knee, but you still do an MRI, they'll have the same problems at the same age. So it doesn't add anything here. The main purpose of an MRI, I should say, is pre-surgical, where they're planning the surgery to make sure there are no surprises there. Another example is stress testing, a little bit controversial, but you know, a stress test of the heart. Uh, You've probably never done one here, Tegan, but (laughs) you, uh, you run on a treadmill till you're exhausted and uh, the, the common one done in the past, still done now, is an ECG, where you, to look for changes in the ECG. But there's an increasing number of cardiologists who believe that a stress ECG is a waste of time and gives you uh, results that are not that accurate. And you could um, have one which is entirely normal and have a heart attack the next day. The more accurate stress test to do to actually differentiate chest pain is a stress echocardiogram where they actually do an ultrasound of your heart as well as an ECG and see if you've got an abnormality there. Just two examples. So it is important to quiz your doctor for both treatments 
and diagnostic tests. So Long answer the, to a short question. <laughs> so it's not that the tests themselves are harmful, but it can set off a cascade where you end up having treatment that you don't need. That's right. You find stuff you, do, you were never meant to know. <laughs> your body's secrets. Well, Norman, one of the things that I wanted to share with you today is not a question, but some feedback. Anne Harris has written in saying her son's hearing was saved by the health report. Um, we, really? had a, we had an episode, I think last year, about sudden hearing loss. Her son arrived at her house and reported just that. She sent him the link for the episode, urged him to see the doctor, and he his GP sent him to the emergency room, and the doctor didn't know what it was, but called a consultant, and he was tested and started on medication straight away. And if I remember that segment, correctly, early intervention was was the answer. Yep, and it was uh, made by James Bullen, our producer. Good on you, James. Yeah, bouquet for Bullen. <laughs> and now a question. Um, David Frick has written in asking about how medications are eliminated from being a possible remedy or treatment for COVID-19. David's pointing out that the pharmaceutical industry is always creating new drugs and there might be a decent treatment hidden in there that we don't know about. So what's the process of screening whether a drug might or might not be effective for COVID? It's a, it's a really good question. So repurposing of all drugs is a hot topic and has been for a few years now. And there's a few ways of doing it. One is if you know the genetic profile that a drug works best with or the genetic effects or the biological effects of a drug, you can, and then you look at the disease, a lot of it's been done with cancer. You can often find, not quite often, but they, they have found drugs, I can't give you an example off the top of my head, where they, uh, you, because of the, the genomics, they found an unexpected link between a given drug and the effect. Um, this has been most commonly found with existing cancer drugs. So existing cancer drugs, say for bowel cancer, they have an effect there. Then they find that um, a breast cancer has a similar molecular abnormality, so they use the bowel cancer drug for, for a woman with breast cancer and so on and so forth. But they've also found drugs that have got nothing to do with cancer at all or heart disease, which have an unexpected effect. So that's one way that they find, that they find a, a link. Then there's others. An example in COVID-19 is ivermectin. So ivermectin is an antiparasitic drug used as a sheep dip um, in agriculture, but has also been used spectacularly successful in river blindness in Africa, uh, in humans. So well tested, known to be safe in humans, but also biologically, people at Monash University had noticed that what it also did was change a molecular mechanism in the cell, which theoretically could help the cell resist viral infection. And what they found in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a laboratory was the potential to resist COVID-19, you help to resist COVID-19 infection. And that's led to clinical trials of ivermectin, some of which have turned out to be quite positive. And it's possible that ivermectin, unlike uh, hydroxychloroquine, might turn out to be quite useful, but we still don't have uh, the results yet that make sense out of human trials. Mm, so a drug that's for something completely different, completely different cause of disease might have an effect. Yeah, and hydroxychloroquine was similar. It, it, you know, there were, theoretically, there was, there was antiviral effects. It would have been great if it worked, and it didn't. And ivermectin may or may not work. We'll just see. Another question from Philip Crawford, who's asking about cellulitis. So his younger brother has just told me that he has it, and um, he's asked Google about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but well, wonders... You better tell me what Google said well, before Google... I answer, because I don't want to get Dr. Google you know, angry. Well. 
Dr Google apparently said that it's a bacterial infection of the skin when bacteria penetrate a skin lesion, which sounds relatively uncontroversial, but Philip's question is really about why do some people get it and some people don't? People get cuts and scrapes all the time. What gives someone cellulitis? Well, it's complicated. And so there there are known to be some people who are more likely to get cellulitis. So the older you are um, and the, the more your immune system becomes less efficient, the more likely you are to get cellulitis. Diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, but particularly type 2 diabetes where you tend to be overweight, um, increases the risk of cellulitis. Um, if you are overweight and you ha- and and then what goes along with that is poor circulation. So if you've got a cause of poor circulation, particularly in the leg, um, and the the return of blood and therefore the supply of oxygenated blood to that tissue is compromised, then the tissue is open to infection and cellulitis becomes more common. And then it's the organism. So some people might be unlucky to be infected with a particular organism, which is a bacterium, which is particularly virulent. And um, they might have, you know, just because of the play of chance or some genetic issue, they may be more susceptible to that. And then the probably the commonest cause of uh, the reason for you being susceptible to cellulitis is they don't know. It's called, uh, essentially, a lot of people get it and they never get it again and they've got no risk factor at all. Actually, as you say that, the rest of Philip's question is, can you prevent reinfection if you've had it before? Um, Well, it depends what's wrong with you. If you've had it more than once, then you do need to be under the care of a surgeon or an infectious disease specialist who then can advise you accordingly. If you've got risk factors, you want to minimise those risk factors, lose weight and just make sure you're getting lots of exercise. But if you're particularly susceptible to, um, to cellulitis, you don't walk in your bare feet, you're as careful as possible and the slightest cut you make sure you tend to very quickly. Um, so there are all sorts of ways of doing that. I'm not going to give individual medical advice. <laughs> it's beyond my pay grade. Well, that's all from us this week. But yeah, if you want to ask a question, I want to sling as many of your questions as I can at Norman. So send us an email, healthreport underscore rn at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.